0: Welcome to the Daily Journal Podcast for January 17th, 2020. I'm Brian Cardell. Today, as we did last week, we're focusing on another new California law that's listing an array of legal challenges as the calendar turns over to a new year and new laws take effect. As with last week, the law we'll focus on today involves the employment context. Previously, we looked at AB51, governing mandatory arbitration and hiring agreements. Today, our show regards AB5, which puts into statutory form a 2018 California Supreme Court decision about when workers need to be classified as employees as opposed to independent contractors for purposes of California's labor laws. The classification distinction makes a big difference to employers and workers both, as employees are covered by a much wider array of state labor provisions, like those pertaining to minimum wages, maximum hours, overtime, meal and rest breaks, worker compensation, health insurance, etc., the state high court's 2018 decision, the Dynamics decision, has been pretty generally viewed as creating essentially an assumption that workers in California are employees. But employers can show that workers are independent contractors by meeting a three-part standard the court crafted known as the ABC test. Some that test up briefly, workers are rightly deemed independent contractors. They are generally free from the control of their hiring party if they customarily engage in the sort of trade usually done by independent contractors and, and this is the element that has elicited the most pushback, the worker must be performing tasks that are outside the usual course of a hiring entity's business. That last provision is a pretty clear attempt to alter the business model of mobile app rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft and other tech startups that mostly rely on fleets of drivers the companies team independent contractors rather than full-time employees. And so Much of the media coverage surrounding AB5 has focused on that context regarding the so-called gig economy. But there are two other suits that have gotten a bit less attention, but are very much at the center of the battle over AB5. And today we'll speak with two attorneys involved in those two different matters, who possess very different views about the viability of the new law. First, we'll speak with an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, Jim Manley, who leads a freelance journalist group challenging AB5. Manley represents the American Society of Journalists and Authors and the National Press Photographers Association, whose members, Manley says, have been hindered from freely pursuing their work as freelance writers and photographers because of the new laws restrictions. Freelance journalists, Manley argues, in many ways benefit from the flexibility that being an independent contractor allows, being able to set one's own schedule, work for a variety of different outlets, and turn down work one would rather not do. The new law's purported benefits, Manley says, like overtime pay and guaranteed breaks just aren't that critical to freelancers. AB5 does have an exception carved out for freelance journalists under it. A freelancer doesn't have to become an employee of a given outlet unless the freelancer completes 35 pieces of work for that outlet in a given year. But, Manley argues, in the age of listicles and curated Instagram posts, freelancers can quickly exceed that number leaving them with the choice to either turn down work they'd rather take or hire on full-time with an employer with the limitations that may entail. Mainly says by treating freelance journalists and freelance journalism in that way, AB 5 runs afoul of the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. He'll be here in just a moment to describe in a bit more detail both of those arguments. Also here from an attorney who is defending AB 5, in a case brought by an industry trade group, the California Trucking Association, there the plaintiffs complain that AB5 makes employees out of most all professional truck drivers in California, and that this violates both the Constitution's Commerce Clause and a federal law that governs truck-driving routes and goods trafficked through them. Stacy Layton of Alttriller brazon LLP is defending the law while representing the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, her client has intervened to join California in defense of AB5. In Leighton's view, the California Trucking Association actually lacks standing to bring its claim because, she says, most truck drivers in California would be considered employees, not independent contractors, under the previous labor law regime that predated AB5 and the 2018 California Supreme Court decision. She also says the plaintiff's Commerce Clause argument is unavailing and that the federal law at issue, the Federal Aviation Administration Authorization Act, doesn't preempt AB 5 because even if the state law has some impact on how much it might cost to move things via truck routes, the Ninth Circuit has held that labor restrictions are generally not viewed as a direct enough impact in that context to trigger preemption. For now, the judge in that case, Roger Benitez of the Southern District, has granted the plaintiffs a preliminary injunction, and a California State Superior Court, in a case proceeding on similar legal grounds, has found AB 5 is preempted by that federal law. hear from both of our guests in just a moment. But first, to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company, protecting your practice through 2020 and beyond. Lawyers Mutual's resolution is the same as years prior to protect members' practices with continued benefits. Lawyers Mutual's reputation of stability and consistency has thrived for over 40 years because of their members' loyalty, and they are proud that 93% of members renewed their policies in 2019. Lawyers Mutual offers more than just malpractice insurance to members, including free $100,000 cyber endorsement, a lawyer-to-lawyer hotline, and complimentary continuing legal education. Make visiting lawyersmutual.com one of your 2020 resolutions and find out more about their exclusive member benefits they offer to California lawyers. Okay, our first guest is Jim Manley, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, who is challenging AB5 as violating the First Amendment rights of freelance journalists in California. He joins me now. Jim, thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: So, as your motion for a preliminary injunction here in the case of American Society of Journalists and, and Authors versus Becerra mentions, there's um, uh, a significant difference between, I guess, the ruling that AB Five um, sets out to, to codify into law, and the actual statute AB Five. The statute, you say, is is quite a bit broader than the court's ruling from 2018. Tell me about the uh, Significance or the uh, the broader aspects of the law, and I guess how that gets it to rope in plaintiffs like the freelance journalists that are in, in your um, in your group of plaintiffs.
1: Yeah, so we we hear a lot that AB five was just codifying Dynamex, and um, that's that's just not the case because Dynamex was actually a pretty narrow decision that just dealt with the. Uh, meaning of the suffer or permit to work standard under California's wage orders and so basically what that means is for things like minimum wage or break periods there are these rules that apply to employees and, and not independent contractors and so Dynamex was only focused on that little piece of California labor law and it's a piece that doesn't really have much to do with professionals like freelance journalists that we represent in our lawsuit so under Dynamex, there really wasn't any direct effect on on our clients, um, but with AB5, it takes that that strict uh, standard for what counts as an independent contractor and what counts as an employee from Dynamex, and it applies that across the board to all of California labor law. So AB5 uh, doesn't codify doesn't just codify Dynamex; it's greatly expands its reach uh, and sweeps in folks like like my clients in this case.
0: Just to, to put a slightly finer point there, so the the Dynamex ruling sort of applied to folks that were covered by a variety of I guess wage orders, and, and you're saying that uh, folks like freelance journalists um, weren't typically implicated in those types of, of orders, but maybe covered by different areas of labor law. I guess what what are the sort of different types of, of workers that uh, were covered by Dynamics uh, but that are now, or that uh, weren't covered by Dynamics that are now uh, covered by AB5? It includes, uh, obviously, the, the freelance journalists that you're representing, but uh, any other types of workers?
1: Well, it's it, AB5 now covers any worker in California um, and, and creates a presumption that any worker in California is an employee unless the the uh, employer can demonstrate that each of the three factors uh, under uh, AB5 and Dynamex are, are met. And the the factor that really causes the most trouble for folks like, like journalists is that an independent contractor has to be engaged in some business that is not the business of the, uh, the employer. And so when you're a journalist creating content, you're obviously engaged in the same line of work as a a publication that is distributing that content, and so you are automatically and unavoidably an employee under a b five and that creates all sorts of negative consequences for uh, for folks who prefer to be freelancers.
0: let's get into those negative consequences because um, certainly the 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 pitch by supporters of a b five is that you know folks being covered by it is is good for them because um, they'll be provided certain. Uh, protections and, and benefits by employers they might not otherwise get if they um, are classified by those employers as independent workers rather than employees, things like health benefits, uninsure, um, unemployment benefits, and and the like. So I guess what are the, the negative aspects of having AB5 cover plaintiffs like um, the journalists, uh, the freelance journalists that you represent?
1: Well, we could start with the um, the somewhat positive effects of employment status that, that you just mentioned, things like unemployment insurance, uh, health health insurance, um, retirement accounts, um, things like that. Uh, those are uh, advantages for some people, but for folks who would prefer the independence of freelancing, those are actually costs that that make their work more expensive for publishers. And so, there, there are, are folks who would rather not have those expenses. You know, some, some writers are not too worried about um, uh, workers' comp uh, claims, and so they would prefer to, to have the independence and flexibility to be freelancers. So even those putative benefits actually make journalists' work more expensive and so can be a negative for them as um, an injury. But uh, even beyond that, Part, part of those benefits uh, arise only because someone works for an employer for uh, a, a particular period of time or a, a certain amount of hours. And when you're a freelancer with multiple clients, it's quite often going to be the case that you won't qualify for unemployment insurance if you lose a single client, uh, or you won't qualify for the the employer's health plan if you only work for them for, say, 36 submissions uh, a year and... and In the world of of listicles and internet content, a submission can be something as simple as as a listicle that that takes just a a few minutes to put together or an Instagram post. Uh, And so you've you've got uh, a situation where you could easily bump up against the 35 submission limit imposed by AB5, but not be entitled to the benefits of employment. And then we get into the advantages that these freelancers have when they're working as independent business people. They can uh, be in control of their expenses and deduct their expenses uh, from from their taxes, and so they get to decide if they want to spend money to go to a conference uh, or buy new equipment, and they don't have to get approval for that uh, from uh, an, an employer. Uh, if they could even get approval from uh, an employer, uh, you know, in a situation where they're They're really perhaps attending a film festival with the intention of writing about it, but don't have a a contract in place to do that yet. They've got the flexibility to take that risk uh, as a freelancer. um, They wouldn't even have the ability to consider that if they had to get all their expenses approved in advance. And so they enjoy that flexibility. And then you've got the... The, the flexibility in, in terms of time and and workload that is essential for some of the folks that we've talked to who have small children at home or have a spouse that needs extra care. they They need to have the ability to just say no to a piece of work without consequence. And as an employee your ability to do that is obviously much more restricted than if you are a freelancer with multiple clients and with an expectation that uh, you will do work for them when you want to do work for them, uh, rather than someone uh, who's in an employment relationship and there's, there's an expectation of uh, ongoing work. Um, so those are, are just a, a few of the, the issues that arise when you try to cram freelancers into this employee box, and it, it results in, in a lot of uh, practical and, and financial injury uh, for these folks.
0: And so you mentioned it. There's a, a threshold number of, of pieces of work that freelance journalists must perform before AB5 does. In fact, you sort of wrote them into the uh, the category of employees under a particular um, employer, and that's uh, 35. So if a freelancer performs a couple of dozen uh, pieces of work for a variety of, of different outlets over the course of a year he or she could remain an independent um, contractor under the terms of the new law. But you're saying that in the type of, of modern communications and journalism environment where uh, certain works can you know, be more ephemeral, fleeting, quickly produced, uh, 35 is a, is a pretty low number, so people can pretty quickly get um, up above it and, and into AB5 territory with a, a given employer. Um, without, you know, having really produced work that takes that much amount of time or covers that uh, many months out of the year, it's just that, that, that the 35 is sort of a, a low threshold. Is that right?
1: Yeah, the, the 35 submission number, the, the sponsor of AB5 has admitted that it is, quote, arbitrary. And I think it was based on sort of an idea that if, um, if you're working – if you're, if you're writing a, a weekly column, for example, for a, a newspaper, that uh, the, the sponsor of AB5 felt that that should be um, employment rather than a freelance uh, situation. But as we've discussed, it doesn't really take into account the way journalism works these days, uh, the, way, the way freelance writing and photography works these days. It's, it, is, um, it can be quicker, it can be um, um, it involve many, many more submissions than a typical weekly column, for example. The, um, the the 35 submission limit is actually one of the deeper constitutional problems with AB5 because it only applies to freelance writers and photojournalists and photographers. So if, if you're a marketing professional, uh, you have a full exemption under AB5, and you can write as many press releases as you like as a freelance marketing professional. But if you're a freelance writer, writing about those press releases for a newspaper, uh, you're limited to 35 submissions. And that sort of content-based distinction between speakers is is just not tolerated under the First Amendment.
0: That leads me to my next question, the, the particular constitutional challenges that you brought to the law. One of them is a, a First Amendment constitutional challenge, um, which, as you've hinted at, is premised partly on um, the way in which the law restricts or treats differently certain types of uh, speech and, and work product. Um, I guess walk me through the the full range of, of what your First Amendment uh, claim is is um, articulating.
1: Sure, we, we've brought the First Amendment claims and the and equal protection claims, and they're somewhat similar because the the premise of both is that AB five draws arbitrary distinctions between different kinds of speaking professions based on the content of their speech. And so we have the 35 submission limit that applies only to freelance writers and uh, photographers and photojournalists. And then we also have this ban on video recording. So the the, uh, exception for photographers only applies to still photography. It's quite explicit about that. And so if you are taking pictures – for uh, a newspaper and uh, you flip over to video on the same camera, uh, you instantly lose the ability to be a freelancer if you submit that video for uh, publication. And so but that only applies to uh, freelance photojournalists and photographers. So if again, if you're taking pictures for marketing purposes, you've got a full exemption. Uh, if you are uh, taking pictures as part of a grant proposal that you're putting together, grant writers have a full exemption. Uh, fine artists also have a full exemption. So I, I suppose if your your photojournalism is artistic enough, then you might have a full exemption under AB5. But the problem with, with that line of thinking is that the First Amendment just doesn't allow the government to make distinctions based on the content of speech. And so if If the government is applying the same rules across the board to everyone, that's not a problem. The government certainly can have labor regulations that apply to the press. But what it can't do is what it's done in AB5 and and single out the press for especially negative treatment under the law.
0: Do you you have a sense of, I guess, how the law came to have some of those Distinctions, and I suppose the uh, the legislative process is, is fairly messy. But um, you know, some of the uh, distinctions that you pointed out between marketing professionals and and journalists, and the way the law treats them differently, doesn't it? You know, don't seem like there maybe um, a whole lot of uh, justification between the the differential treatment. Do you know the sort of purported justification for some of those, some of that line drawing?
1: Well, folks that were involved in negotiating the bill have described it as uh, one of the more arbitrary and um, politically motivated processes that they had seen, um, and that's you know that's compared to the regular legislative process, which is uh, often arbitrary and, and highly political. Uh, it it seemed that uh, if you had the the support of a union. Uh, that you could get an exemption. It also seemed that if you had enough political clout, you could get uh, an exemption. Uh, and so the, the the bill is just carved up with uh, dozens of exemptions that really have no rhyme or reason. And that's, that's part of the reason that we think the bill also violates the Equal Protection Clause, because The government is not allowed to make arbitrary distinctions between different types of professions, but that's exactly what AB5 does. It it grants exemptions to some and withholds exemptions from others. It grants partial exemptions to some and uh, uh, completely denies exemptions to to other professionals. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason about which uh, professionals received an exemption other than to look to their political clout and that's just not a sound uh, or constitutional basis for the government to draw those sorts of distinctions under the Equal Protection Clause.
0: Okay, that leads me to a couple other questions I would have for you just in terms of um, the way in which the state may attempt and is attempting, certainly in the, the case that you brought to, to justify uh, its new law. Um, one being that the, the differential treatment that the different groups of, of professionals may receive under the law, um, that differential treatment being whether or not um, they become employees or remain independent contractors under AB 5. Um, you know, the the distinctions may be real and, and impact those individuals, but the, the line drawing doesn't divide folks up in sort of a, a traditional suspect way. You're not dividing folks in one racial category uh, for different treatment or groups in one gender category. Um, for, for differential treatment. And so the the sort of constitutional review that would be triggered is, is the lowest um, level of scrutiny, rational basis review, which when courts apply it, the law of being challenged tends to get through rational basis review. Is your argument that even if that is the level used, that there's not even a rational basis for these distinctions? Do you think that the, uh, the, the level of scrutiny should be higher?
1: Well, um, so even under the rational basis test, the Ninth Circuit has held that the government can't draw arbitrary distinctions between different types of professionals. And, and that's actually uh, a case that my colleagues at PLF won uh, on behalf of a, a gentleman who was doing pest control. And uh, California's pest control regulations made arbitrary distinctions between which sort of pest controllers needed to have training in using pesticides. Uh, and uh The the gentleman that they represented did not use pesticides, but he still needed to have training in it because of the type of pests that he was controlling. Now if he had been working on different pests he wouldn't have needed that training and and all the costs that was associated with it. And that arbitrary distinction based on what sort of pests are being controlled was struck down by the Ninth Circuit under the rational basis standard, which is highly deferential, but still uh, involves some judicial scrutiny. But here The rational basis standard does not apply because the way that the court has, or I'm sorry, that the way that the legislature has drawn these distinctions is on the basis of speech. And so when, when the legislature draws distinctions between different speakers, it implicates what the court has described as the fundamental right to free speech. And in that case, uh, the the same standard applies to an equal protection claim as would apply to a First Amendment claim, w- which is strict scrutiny in this case, meaning that the government has to show by evidence that this distinction is necessary to achieve uh, a significant, uh, compelling government purpose.
0: To to that point, one other argument in, in the the state's briefing um, is that though you know the parties affected or regulated by AB five you know, in, in the context we're talking about <clears throat> um, our speakers, the, the law isn't, you know, exact in, in a, the classic way regulating speech, saying one group of speakers can't speak and one can. It's just saying um, one is affected by the employment laws differently than the other. Um, One, if they speak more than, I guess, 35 times in a particular way, get health insurance. So it's not exactly the traditional sort of prohibiting or restricting of speech. Um, Nonetheless, you think that it should sort of be viewed in a similar way as if the government were sort of impinging on, on the right of speech?
1: Well, it's not just I that thinks that, the Supreme Court does too, and so what the the state has so far ignored is that there are uh, several Supreme Court cases where the court has said that the government can't apply a tax uh, in a way that discriminates against journalists, and so the court has struck down taxes on ink and paper that were um, focused on um, uh, newspapers when when Paper and ink were still the main way that newspapers communicated. Uh, and the court has also struck down taxes that create exemptions based on the content of uh, the publication. So a, uh, a law where uh, different taxes applied based on what the publications were covering, whether it was a general interest publication or a sports publication, uh, the law drew distinctions about what kind of tax the the, the newspaper would owe. And uh, the court struck that down because it was based on the content of the publication. And so you have the same situation here where these employment taxes apply uh, and the tax consequences of being either an employee or or an independent contractor apply based on the content of speech. And so whether or not you owe these taxes uh, or whether these taxes apply to your work depends on what you're saying, whether you're a journalist or a marketer, and the Supreme Court has, has said that that sort of burden on speech is is not allowed, and it's treated the same way as if the government had just banned journalists.
0: The, you know, the arithmetic of that argument, I suppose, depends on the court viewing the um, implications of AB5 as burdens on, on your plaintiffs, and we've essentially talked about it already. The idea is just that um, you know there are uh, freelance journalists that would like to remain that way and um, will have a hard time doing so because of AB5. I guess the state is arguing, look, the law is only meant to ensure positive things accrue uh, to the groups of workers that it affects. Um, so the, the outcome of the... Uh, outcome of this case does to, to some extent depend on how the court looks at, I guess, whether or not, um, your plaintiffs are harmed by AB5, right? Uh,
1: certainly the, the court will, will need to, um, uh, understand how the journalists are harmed by being classified as employees, but the harm is, is rather, uh, direct or, or it, it's probably better to think of it as, uh, as injury uh, rather than harm because, um, the, the financial burden of these taxes, although they may um, give benefits to some people, uh, the the folks that we're representing here have said that the that the the financial burden of paying these taxes far outweighs any potential benefit that, that they might get. And then the the distinction between uh, employees and freelancers when it comes to um, the the tax advantages of being an independent business that's a, a stark and and uh, obvious difference uh, and one that flows directly from AB5 and so there's really there's no argument that um, journalists are better off because they they uh, can't uh, deduct uh, business expenses they they would obviously prefer to be able to deduct their, their business expenses they're financially better off if they can Another uh, injury that we didn't discuss earlier is uh, the ownership of copyright. So uh, under American law, the presumption is that an employer owns the copyright of uh, works that their employees produce. And particularly for our uh, photojournalism clients, they have never seen a situation where a staff photographer was able to retain the copyright to their work. Um, Whereas as a freelancer, the rule is that the freelancer owns the copyright and owns the ability to then resell the work um, to to other publications uh, or for other uses. And this is really important for our our writer clients as well because they can turn their uh, written materials into things like TV shows and movies uh, which can be, you know, incredibly lucrative, life-changing for a writer who's, who's able to, to, um, use his intellectual property in that way. So, being able to retain ownership of the copyright is also a direct consequence of whether you're classified as, as an employee or, uh, as an independent contractor. So those are, are really direct, immediate effects that, um, that, that have a negative consequence for, for folks who are, are forced to become employees. Now, that doesn't mean that there are some folks who might choose to be employees, um, and that's fine, and and our clients have no uh, complaints about someone who decides that the better course for them is a staff job. Their only point is that they should have the option to choose to be a freelancer, and to be a freelancer on the same terms as other speaking professionals who are given a full exemption under uh, AB5.
0: Okay, and just one last quick thing. So the status of AB5 as it pertains to your plaintiffs, is it currently in effect? I know the the court is awaiting arguments for a preliminary injunction in your case, but there's other cases that are also being brought. Is AB5 sort of enjoined altogether, or is it taking effect right now um, as to your plaintiffs?
1: It is in effect right now, and and we're already seeing publications pull out of California, uh, blacklisting California writers and photographers uh, because of the, the burdens that um, uh, AP5 creates. And uh, and so I've, I've talked to people who are considering moving out of California to maintain their careers. Uh, and uh, so, it's, yeah, it's having a direct and, and, and pretty dramatic effect right now. Uh, our, our motion for preliminary injunction is set for hearing on March 9th, and so we're hopeful that we'll get some relief for these folks who are uh, struggling under ab5 uh, then there are some other cases where where judges have, have moved a little bit more quickly and so ab5 has been enjoined as it applies to uh, independent truck drivers uh, and um, so we're uh, we're hopeful though that we can get get the law enjoined uh, in, in March so that folks can get back to work
0: okay uh well Jim manley is an attorney with the pacific legal Foundation thanks so much for being on our podcast I appreciate
1: your time yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, before hearing from our next guest, two reminders for you. The first, don't forget that listeners of this podcast are very much encouraged to claim California Participatory CLE credit for having tuned in. It's easy enough to do. Just go to the website, www.dailyjournal.com, find this podcast in our podcast library click through to a short true-false test. Once you've taken and submitted an almost nominal fee, you'll receive one hour of participatory CLE credit. We really do appreciate folks taking the time to click through to that test and claim their credit because I've continue to offer this podcast outside of our usual paywall. Also, every week, the Daily Journal publishes the Verdicts and Settlements section in which consequential rulings from federal and state courts around California are included. And if you have a recent result of any kind, in, in trial court or in arbitration or mediation that you'd like to, to publish, we'd certainly like to know about it. To submit that result to us, and again, it can be any final resolution of a, a trial-level matter in California state or federal court, go to www.dailyjournal.com/vns. That's V and S spelled out, no ampersand. Okay, Stacy Layton is defending AB five in a different case from the case we previously spoke about with Jim Manley. The case Layton is involved in was brought by a trucking industry trade group, arguing the law violates the Constitution and is preempted by federal law. Miss Layton disagrees and is here now to tell us why. Stacy, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So, a few questions for you about this uh, this case brought by the California Trucking Association challenging AB five and, and seeking. So it, uh, seeking to prevent it from taking effect. I suppose one question I might have at the outset is one interesting sort of facet about the timing um, of this case in the in the way that it's sort of been framed in the coverage is that the the plaintiff organization, this trade organization, is trying to to stop the law from taking effect. But as you've mentioned in, in some of your briefing, you know the the court case that was the, the predecessor that gave rise to the law dynamics from 2018 that's been on the books, um, and so it's the case that the the law of dynamics, which became AB5, has been impacting the the plaintiff group um, up to this point, right? So it's not like it's a fight over whether or not um, the, the the rules of AB5 will affect these folks. It's that's already that had already happened, right?
2: Uh, you are correct that what AB5 did was codify what the California Supreme Court had said 20 months ago in the dynamics decision. And so they should have been able to show that they have already been impacted by the California's adoption of this test for employment status. And they weren't able to demonstrate that. And so we're trying to manufacture an emergency out of AB5 taking effect as of January 1st. I think you're right about that.
0: Just one other note about the structure of this lawsuit. So, California Trucking Association has brought it against the state, um, and you have intervened on behalf of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters as a intervener supporting the state. Um, so, originally, though, this challenge was brought against that court case dynamics, right? Not AB5. So, has it sort of morphed into a from a challenge against the the case as into one against uh, the, the statute?
2: Yes, that's that's right. And the same association actually had previously brought a challenge, which was rejected by the Ninth Circuit, to the Borello test, which is the common law test that preceded Dynamics, um, and had at that point said that it was going to be impossible for them to continue to contract with independent truck drivers, and the sky was falling. Um, And that challenge had been rejected by the Ninth Circuit. And then you're right, after the California Supreme Court adopted the Dynamics test, brought suit challenging that, and then after the Adoption of AB five modified their complaint to challenge AB five itself.
0: Uh, it, it might be helpful also just at the outset to kind of um, briefly unpack the the different ways in which um, folks in the group that you're presenting, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, are impacted by the different labor law regimes. So as compared to say what the rules were under Borello, I suppose what um, what differences do folks uh, drivers covered under AB five now have, or I guess what? how do the different rules impact um, the the members of the group you're representing?
2: Well, the benefit of AB5 is that it is a clearer, more straightforward test that puts the burden on the employers and says there is a presumption of employment status unless the contracting entity can show that all three of the prongs of the ABC test are met. It's a clearer test than the multi-factor Borrello common law regime. Uh, But even under Borrello, we put in evidence showing that in 97% of the cases that were being adjudicated uh, by the state, trucking companies were held to have misclassified their drivers under Borrello. So the reality is that these trucking companies have been misclassifying and in many cases getting away with their misclassification of drivers who really are employees but are being treated as independent contractors for years. So the dynamics test makes it clearer that the trucking companies have an obligation to accurately classify their drivers, Um, but in most cases probably will not uh, change the result because the trucking companies were losing these misclassification cases anyway.
0: Sure. So in sort of under either regime a lot of the folks you're representing would be determined to be employees and and thus entitled to the sorts of things like guaranteed meal and rest periods and and health insurance and a lot of other various aspects of of labor law protections
2: yes that's right and under under borello and under any test really that you that you could adopt um most of the truck drivers in california who are being treated as independent contractors if a court took a look at it, would actually be held to be employees. But what the ABC test does is it just makes that clearer and more straightforward and makes it easier and more streamlined for the state or for private parties or for the drivers themselves to enforce their rights.
0: Okay, about um, the arguments that you've brought in your briefing against um, the, the, the Cal Trucker Association claims. One, as a preliminary matter, you say that the organization doesn't have standing to bring this suit in, in federal court. Could you walk me through that claim?
2: Yeah, that that really goes back to what we were saying about the Borello standard, because in, in most of the cases that were adjudicated before dynamics, before the ABC test was adopted as a matter of statute, the trucking companies were already held to be misclassifying their drivers under Borello. And so our argument on standing, well we had a couple of different arguments, but our primary argument was in order to show that it had standing, the California Trucking Association had the burden to demonstrate that it had at least one member that it would identify who, whose drivers would be independent contractors under the Borrello test, but would be employees under the ABC test, because only such a trucking company could actually be affected by AB5. Otherwise, if their drivers were employees under Borrello anyway, uh, they can't claim to have been affected by the adoption of the ABC test. And so that was our primary argument for why the trucking companies did not have standing. Uh, We also argued that they could not show any threat of imminent enforcement uh, as required under Supreme Court doctrine to bring a pre-enforcement challenge. The proper way to raise this kind of preemption claim would really be as a defense in a case where the ABC test is being applied to a trucking company in a misclassification case. They're trying to bring a pre-enforcement facial challenge And the judicial standards to bring such a challenge really require the challenger to demonstrate that they're facing an imminent threat of enforcement. And the California Trucking Association really didn't show that any of its members were facing such a threat.
0: So uh, you've mentioned it now, the the sort of heart of the argument by CTA is that AB5 is preempted by federal law, the Federal Aviation and Administration Authorization Act, the FAA, um, because it impacts uh, prices or routes or the service of motor carriers. Uh, you've argued that the FAA does not preempt AB5. Describe that argument to me.
2: Sure. The the Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit have taken a look at what the we call it the F quad A because it's F followed by four A's. Uh, so the when the courts have taken a look at what does the F quad A really mean when it talks about a direct impact on rates, routes, or services. Um, it, it's it's a pretty strict test. And the Ninth Circuit has actually looked at whether employment protections like meal and rest breaks and overtime requirements um, and minimum wage requirements have that kind of direct impact on rates, routes, or services. And the Ninth Circuit has said, even if the imposition of these labor law protections results in increased costs for trucking companies that they then pass on to customers in the form of increased prices that's not the type of direct effect on rates routes or services that federal law pre uh, prohibits states from from adopting and so our argument was that you don't just look at the abc test itself you look at what substantive protections and substantive laws does the abc test render applicable And all that it means is if you uh, meet the ABC test is that you then have to comply with a number of substantive obligations that the Ninth Circuit has already looked at and held are not preempted because they don't have a direct impact on rates, routes, or services.
0: Okay. And certainly the, um, the federal district court here would be uh, much more closely following Ninth Circuit law than the... Uh, state court law of California, but it is correct that in, I think last week, uh, a Superior Court judge did rule that that federal law preempts uh, AB-5. Is, is that right, are you, are you familiar with that case?
2: Yes, it was in the context of a it's a, 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 a case where the city of Los Angeles is uh, in court to challenge the misclassification of, of truck drivers in Los Angeles. And so this the issue actually arose in an in limine motion And Judge Heiberger did conclude that AB5 was preempted by federal law, but he also said that it was a close question, that it was a difficult question, and he certified the issue for appeal and stayed the case while that appeal plays out. And so we are hopeful that that issue will go up in the state courts as as well and that the state appellate court will reach a different conclusion.
0: In terms of any practical effect on um, your case, I mean the federal court wouldn't necessarily pay terribly much attention to, to that sort of ruling, right?
2: Um, that's true, although I will I don't know if you've seen the preliminary injunction decision that Judge Benitez did grant he, you know, as you probably know, he did grant a, a temporary restraining mm-hmm. order just before AB5 took effect. Yesterday he issued a longer decision granting the plaintiff's request to convert that to a preliminary injunction and did cite Judge uh, Heiberger's decision in L- Los Angeles Superior Court in support of that result. Now, there are other courts including um, Judge England and the Eastern District of California uh, and others who have reached the opposite conclusion and held that the ABC test is not preempted by federal law. Uh, but, the, it, but the Los Angeles Superior Court did, did go the same way that Judge Benitez has in our case thus far.
0: One other line of argument I wanted to mention, I'm not sure if this will be centrally uh, at issue in the case, is a sort of commerce clause claim that uh, the the plaintiffs here brought, that AB5 sort of disturbs um, the motion and passage of items through interstate commerce and therefore might violate the the commerce clause or the, the dormant commerce clause by sort of giving California some advantage in in that context. You've argued that that is also not uh, a winning argument, right?
2: Yes, that's right. The courts have been very clear that when a state is only regulating conduct that takes place within its borders, and when the state is not discriminating based on where a product or or something originates from, it's neutral as to whether the truck driver started in New York or Texas or, or California, um, that, the, that the dormant commerce clause is not going to invalidate that state law, unless the state law really has no justification. And here, the ABC test applies only during the time that truckers are actually driving within the state of California. It doesn't mean where they. It doesn't matter where they started. It doesn't matter where they, and it doesn't matter where the truck driver's place of residence is or where the trucking company is based it's really neutral as to which state the truck driver comes from. And so it doesn't discriminate against out-of-state commerce in the manner that the dormant commerce clause is held as unlawful.
0: Okay. And then I guess the main argument or one other main argument um, from the CTA that you've sort of referenced is that, um, you know, maybe this is more of a policy argument, just the the nature of the business kind of mandates that um, trucking companies be able to be flexible and and have a, you know, muster a a larger crew when business gets busy and and things need to move and then, um, you know, there'll be times where that's not the case and so you want to be able to not have a a full-time employee crew that might be waiting around when things are are slower and so it's important to be able to utilize independent contractors um, for, you know, at least if not um, entirely the, the company's business model a large portion of it. I suppose, what's what sort of an argument against that, that argument?
2: There's no reason why trucker companies can't have that same flexibility by using part-time employees, intermittent employees. It's, it's common in many industries that somebody is hired for a particular job, but they are treated as an employee. They're given meal and rest breaks, they're paid minimum wage, they're paid for overtime, and the appropriate employment taxes are, are taken out of their paychecks. And so the the trucking companies have really tried to set this up um, as if compliance with AB5 means that they have to hire full-time, year-round drivers, and they'll have to buy the trucks and provide the drivers with the trucks, when that is just demonstrably untrue. They can hire people for particular jobs. They can hire people who own their own trucks and reimburse them on a mileage basis. Uh, They can do all of those things and maintain their flexibility so long as they're complying with a minimum protections that California employment law has said you have to comply with when you're hiring somebody to provide work within the state of California.
0: And maybe just one last one in, in terms of sort of exactly how this works with there being a preliminary injunction to AB5. Does I mean, Dynamics is still obviously on the books, so does its mandate still impact uh, the the, the plaintiff here and, and, employ, and, and, and truckers in in California or is that also somehow sort of joined as as well I guess uh, are its you know mandates still in, in effect?
2: Well one thing I do want to be clear is that the preliminary injunction enjoins state officials. So the preliminary injunction does not necessarily have an effect on any cases that are brought by truckers themselves, um, any class action lawsuits that are ongoing or anything that private parties or, or even the Teamsters, um, even though we're a party in the lawsuit, um, the injunction does not bind us. So it binds state officials only. Uh, The court really didn't deal with the fact that Dynamics has been in place for 20 months, that AB5 didn't change that. It just codified that and extended some of the ABC test's application. Um, And the court's preliminary injunction says that the Borello test will now govern when state officials are, are litigating against trucking companies but doesn't really explain why that is the case when the injunction targets AB5 itself.
0: So say if uh, a member of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters were to, to bring a private lawsuit against a trucking company, theoretically dynamics would still apply?
2: Um, any entity other than state officials could bring a lawsuit under AB5 it, right. itself saying that the ABC test applies by virtue of AB5. I'm not saying that that is anything that the Teamsters are planning to do. I'm I'm just saying that the preliminary injunction covers state officials. It doesn't cover even the city of Los Angeles, which is a local entity. It doesn't cover private entities. It doesn't cover the the workers themselves if they want to seek to litigate their rights under AB5.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, certainly still a long way to go with this litigation, but we'll go ahead and leave it there for now. Stacey Layton, thanks so much for taking the time out to, to be on our podcast.
2: All right. Thank you.
0: Okay, that's our show for January 17th, 2020. Thanks to both my guests, Jim Manley and Stacy Layton. And also thanks to our sponsor who brings you this podcast, Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company. Remember, Lawyers Mutual is exclusively dedicated to insuring and educating California lawyers, protecting and advancing their practices, clients, and their futures. Learn more about the company by visiting www.lawyersmutual.com, calling 818-565-5512, or emailing L-M-I-C at LawyersMutual.com That's L-M-I-C at LawyersMutual.com Also don't forget that California CLE credit is available to listeners of this podcast and any of the previous DJ podcasts, so go to our podcast library, find your short true-false test affiliated with this episode or ones affiliated with the several years of podcasts we've had now on there. Take those and claim however many hours of participatory credit you would like I'm Brian Cardale look forward to speaking to you next Friday have a great week